0: As a GP, a person comes to you with symptoms of significant weight loss, poor appetite and a general sort of fatigue, and you have conducted the initial tests, basic blood tests and a fecal calprotectin, and you have detected IBD and detected it early. After a referral to the gastroenterologist, what happens next? How can you work with the gastroenterologist to support someone with IBD through to the next steps? Crohn's disease versus ulcerative colitis, what further investigations do you need to make a diagnosis? My name is Heidi Jensen-Harris, and I'm an IBD clinical nurse consultant practising in Queensland. In this second episode of our PUA series, join GP Paresh Daughter and gastroenterologist Eva Zhang. Together they will talk about the next steps once IBD is detected. And I'll discuss key differences between two of the most common types of IBDs, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis.
1: Welcome to the second episode of our podcast series. I'm Parish and a GP based in Canberra, and I'm delighted to be joined by Eva Zhang. Thanks
2: again for having me, Parish. I'm Eva, I'm a gastroenterologist in Sydney. So last episode in the series, we discussed laboratory investigation stool tests, the rationale for early detection of inflammatory bowel disease and how to differentiate between inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. So what are we talking about today?
1: Well, Eva, what I'd really love to understand uh, from a GP perspective is after I refer a patient to a gastroenterologist, what happens next? What are your thought processes and what do you think about? What are those additional investigations that you might undertake in patients with inflammatory bowel disease? And how do you go about differentiating between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis? You know, mm-hmm. yep. in that last episode, we talked a bit about those basic blood tests and a fecal calprotectin. I mm-hmm. guess, you know, the next step is usually a colonoscopy as the next big one. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, certainly. So when we are referred a patient who has suspected inflammatory bowel disease, a colonoscopy is very important for us to confirm the diagnosis. We look for features of endoscopic inflammation. um, So that might include edema, Ulcers, spontaneous bleeding. And we also look to see if there are areas of inflammation, how are they distributed within the colon or the terminal ileum? The inspection of the ileum is is very important to help us delineate our IBD phenotype. Biopsies are taken to show features of inflammation. And in some cases, gastroscopy may also be relevant too, for example, in Crohn's disease, which may affect the upper gastrointestinal tract.
1: Great. So you look at the gastrointestinal tract using endoscopy. What about imaging? Does imaging have a role to play?
2: Yes, definitely. So in many cases, imaging has a really important role. So MRI imaging, as well as in some cases, intestinal ultrasound can be very helpful. We would usually take the lead in organising these investigations So, MR and is something important to use to assess for small bowel involvement in Crohn's disease. For example, if we think that someone has Crohn's disease, we would do an MRI to assess for the presence of ileal involvement, as well as the distribution. It's important to remember that we obviously can't access the entirety of the small bowel and so therefore the MRE may reveal areas of inflammation that um, are not detected endoscopically. For patients who have perianal Crohn's, MR Pelvis is also helpful to look for fistulas and abscesses. And in other cases, colorectal surgeons may also undertake an EUA, which is examination under anaesthesia, to look for fistulas and for abscesses. Another imaging modality, which is becoming more Available now is intestinal ultrasound, which is an invasive method of assessing gut inflammation. So there's no need for fasting, contrast, or an anesthetic in this case. And a gastroenterologist actually scans the abdomen with the usual lubricant and jelly to look for the thickness of the colon and the terminal ileum and to look for other sonographic features of inflammation. So it can be often very useful as a very quick non-invasive method of not only helping us with an adjunctive diagnosis, um, but also to help monitor treatment response, or perhaps monitor patients when they clinically flare. Now CT scans are probably more useful in the acute inpatient setting, for example, when a patient presents to ED with an acute abdomen, we may see intra abscesses or penetrating disease incurs, for example, but it's not really routinely used for diagnosis. So, you know, Parash, in, in your experience, do you organize any scans of patients with suspected diagnosis of IBD?
1: Usually, I think if we as GPs have a high index of suspicion that someone's got IBD, then we'd refer to the gastroenterologist and expect, you know, the expectation is that those additional investigations will be organized by them. Yeah. But having said that, sometimes if there's some non specific symptoms, like, you know, non specific abdominal pain, and we're not really sure, we made an ultrasound or a CT scan of the abdomen to help us try and sort of work out what may be going on.
2: Yep, that's fair enough. I agree. And and certainly in, in patients, particularly IBD patients, tend to be a younger cohort at diagnosis. And so another reason, obviously, to avoid CTs is to minimise uh, exposure to the radiation unnecessarily. So if, if there is a scope to do an MRE or ultrasound, we'd very much prefer that.
1: That's really good to know. Now, my kind of reflections from patients I've referred is, you know, as a gastroenterologist, the sort of diagnostic reasoning that you go through as the next step is to establish that diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, but really try and differentiate between the different types of IBD. Why is that so important to make that distinction diagnosis?
2: Yeah, so, There is a really good reason to differentiate between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease because they behave quite differently to each other. So not only do their presentations vary, but the clinical course of a patient with Crohn's disease may be quite different with ulcerative colitis. For example, someone with Crohn's disease which affects the small bowel, the ileum, may be more likely to develop uh, stricturing disease and obstruction in the future, whereas this is less likely to happen with ulcerative colitis. The other reason why differentiation is important is because it can affect what treatment options are available to them. So these are the reasons why there is a a big focus on trying to classify someone um, as a Crohn's disease patient or an osteocolitis patient. But there is also a category that we use for patients that we can't quite put into one basket or the other, and we call them the IBDU or the IBD unclassified group. And so sometimes with time or as more investigations come to light, we may be able to more confidently classify them as either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, but this is not always the case.
1: Thanks, Evis. It's really interesting to hear about the unclassified diagnosis there between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I guess sometimes it's a matter of time And as the condition evolves, we may see other symptoms, signs, other manifestations, which help point more in one direction compared to the other. Is that what you experience in practice?
2: Definitely. Time can definitely reveal more, as well as potentially serial investigations can also lead us to a diagnosis with more certainty for either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So in reality i think you know with ibd it just means you know we we like to be black and white sometimes and we sort of just like to put things in a box but with ibdu it doesn't mean that we can't treat them they definitely have inflammatory bowel disease but they just don't necessarily fit nicely and so sometimes when they you know evolve is a great word to use when their symptoms evolve and they develop features that put them in a certain category that might open up more treatment options for them, for example. Therefore, we may be able to use a treatment option that's perhaps better suited for their phenotype. That's the utility in allowing time. It doesn't mean that we don't treat them. It's just that sometimes, you know, that classification helps us refine our treatment options.
1: I was going to say it's useful to understand the why.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I guess the next question then is the how, you know, how do we differentiate between these different types?
2: Yeah, so I I suppose the the clinical history is a big part of it. So I guess, know, what do you feel is the typical presentation for patients with ulcerative colitis in practice?
1: Yes, I guess because ulcerative colitis affects the large bowel predominantly, Mm -hmm. you know, these patients will often present with diarrhoea, rectal bleeding, urgency, um, so there's lower GI type Mm -hmm. of symptoms.
2: Yep, yep, that's right. Yeah, and particularly with the distribution of even ulcerative colitis of disease can also affect their presentation too. For example, you know, I find that patients with proctitis, therefore ulcerative colitis or inflammation that only really affects the rectum, they can have symptoms such as urgency and rectal bleeding, whereas those who might have more extensive disease may present with more liquid
1: stored, for example. Yeah, that's really useful. And that sort of variation based on which part of the bowel is affected, I guess is even more apparent in patients with crohn's disease so what sort of variation in presentations and symptoms do you find in people with crohn's disease
2: you know as we discussed in episode one the patients with inflammatory bowel disease can have really varied presentations and that's particularly the case with crohn's disease because inflammation can affect any part of their bowel so for example if you have more colonic disease and you might have presentations that are quite similar to ulcerative colitis with diarrhea and rectal bleeding but if you've only got small bowel disease they only have abdominal pain or the trumpet. they can even be asymptomatic and be diagnosed quite incidentally in children you know patients can fail to thrive or have slow growth and that's the reason a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease comes rather than you know typical diarrhea and rectal bleeding that you may see with colonic involvement the other added complexity is that in crohn's disease you can have perianal disease and so patients can actually present with just you know perianal discharge with fistulas or abscesses as a first presentation or they may also have this accompanying colonic symptoms as well and then even that we do have with crohn's disease inflammation of the ileum as a proportion of patients who sometimes get obstructive Symptoms, so when uh, there is chronic inflammation, which leads to gradual stricturing disease, you can get obstruction and pain, and they may present with a bowel obstruction, for example. Or you can get a penetrating phenotype in Crohn's disease where you have an abnormal connection between parts of the bowel with other parts of the bowel, for example, between small bowel and small bowel, or even with other organs, such as the abnormal connection between the small bowel and bladder, the vagina, and therefore these can present quite differently as well.
1: Right, so there's enormous amount of variation, isn't there, in presentations, based on which part of the bowel is involved, and then we've got all the extraintestinal manifestations to consider too, and we'll talk about these in another episode, I think, in more detail. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. agree. So definitely very difficult to diagnosis um, initially in many cases, but. These are the reasons why the classification of disease is very important, which is why not only do we use colonoscopy and gastroscopy, but we also do need imaging, which can play a big part in helping us with the diagnosis of IBD and therefore knowing how best to manage them.
1: Great. Thanks, Eva. And thank you everyone so much for joining us. In our next episode, we're going to really talk about the referral process, the different treatments, therapy options, and how we go about triaging people with inflammatory bowel disease.
2: Also, don't forget to head to the Crohn's and Colitis Australia website to check out upcoming workshops, modules, and future events. And these websites are available as a link together with this podcast.
0: This podcast series is produced by AGPAL as part of a consortium with Crohn's and Colitis Australia and the Gastroenterological Society of Australia supported by an Australian government grant. In our next episode of Poo and A, Paresh and Eva will discuss how to provide early intervention and a good referral for people in regional and metro areas of Australia. For more resources including a suite of e-learning modules and live e-workshops, head to Crohn's and Colitis Australia Gut Smart website. Follow the link in the podcast description. We support GPs in diagnosing and treating IBD and assist patients in getting the support they need from a gastroenterologist to live their best lives with the significant lifelong condition. If you liked this podcast, please help us by leaving a five-star review and sharing the podcast with other healthcare professionals. Smell you later.